kulture sećanja u dialogu. Slušate podcast Fonda za humanitarno pravo. This is Memory Cultures in Dialogue, the podcast of the Humanitarian Law Center from Serbia. My name is Jelena Đureinović. Our today's episode is about Rwanda, political violence and the 1994 genocide, its aftermath and memory today. We are talking about topics such as commemoration, transitional justice and narratives from below. Our guest is Erin Jesse from the University of Glasgow, an oral historian and genocide scholar working on Rwanda. Erin is the author of Negotiating Genocide in Rwanda, Politics of History, the book that explores the official memory politics in post-genocide Rwanda, and more notably, how Rwandans from different backgrounds make sense of their experiences of the genocide and its aftermath. How did you become interested in studying this topic? Well, I actually, I came to this sort of general topic in a really roundabout way. I did my undergraduate and my master's in archaeology and specializing in forensic archaeology, um, the exhumation of mass graves resulting from, you know, crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide. And it was during my, my master's in particular that I became really interested in um, the way in which these atrocities played out in different contexts um, and also became particularly interested in how people experience these atrocities. So not just kind of what remains in the archaeological record and, and how you might um, study that for the purpose of, say, criminal tribunals and other kinds of um, legal processes, but but really the sort of long-term effects on, on people from different backgrounds. So um, for my PhD, I transitioned to an interdisciplinary humanities program where I was bringing the forensic side of things together with anthropology, history, um, genocide studies, of course, and oral history became a really, really big part of my methodology during my PhD. And what about coming to the topic of particularly uh, Rwanda and, um, well, Bosnia as well in your PhD. I was in a program that really prioritized comparative genocide studies. And so when I was, you know, in Canada, we have what's called comprehensive exams and you have to study kind of for the first two years of the program um, to pass these exams before you're then permitted to move forward with your research project. And so I was studying Rwanda, Cambodia, Bosnia and Guatemala for the purpose of my comprehensive exams and it it very quickly became clear that really gaining a thorough understanding of the conflicts in four very different contexts um, was just a hugely onerous task and so I eventually managed to convince my supervisor at the time, um, Dr. Frank Chop, that I, I could limit it to just two case studies um, and compare two case studies instead of four. And then in deciding which case studies I wanted to focus on, I ended up making just a very practical decision um, with Rwanda and Bosnia. I mean, these were both conflicts that were playing out at about the same time. And likewise, at that point, they both had very similar international responses in the sense that you know, intervention was really, I think, at times poorly put together. But then in the immediate aftermath of the of the genocides, the International Criminal Tribunals were put in place to help create a kind of historical record of what had happened to prosecute the high-level perpetrators. And so it seemed to me from, from a very sort of practical sense, there'd be similar kinds of evidence available for me to, to work with. And likewise, I'd be working in two contexts where people would likely be quite familiar with, you know, being interviewed, talking about these kinds of experiences, Whereas in Cambodia and Guatemala at the time, I wasn't really sure that would be the case. So it seemed like, you know, Rwanda and Bosnia made, made for a natural kind of comparison given, given the balance of, of archival materials and um, the interviews and ethnographic work I wanted to do. In Rwanda in 1994, 
Hutu power extremists killed between half a million and 800,000 people, mainly ethnic Tutsi. Could you provide our listeners with an overview of the genocide in Rwanda and maybe also briefly discuss the political context in the post-genocide period? With regards to Rwanda as well, I think there's also often a lot of misinformation about um, not just the sort of 1994 genocide, but more broadly how it how it came about. I mean, in essence, the genocide, um, which in official parlance is referred to as the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi, was a period in which, as you mentioned, these Hutu power extremists attempted to eliminate the nation's ethnic Tutsi minority. It really came about because of rising ethnic tensions and political tensions in the country that in many ways are grounded in, in the country's sort of recent history, at least the history of the of the 20th century. You know, at the end at the end of the 19th century, Rwanda was already starting to increase in terms of, of ethnic and political tensions, particularly with the arrival then of German colonizers and missionaries, European missionaries, and then the Belgian colonial period, um, which started in 1916. Rwandans basically began to experience this really, really dramatic transformation um, of the nation's culture, its religious practices, its economy, really everything, as a result of the imposition of European values, um, the exploitation of local resources by Europeans. And as part of this, there was also a lot of sort of study of Rwanda that was happening by European scholars at the time which completely misinterpreted the country and the way that its people sort of identified. It was during this colonial period then that this idea of ethnicity began to come to the forefront. And in particular then, under the Germans, but more so I think even under the Belgians, they decided to really invest in the Tutsi minority because they had this understanding of the Tutsi as being semi-Caucasian and therefore the natural rulers of Rwanda. And I mean, This ties back to what's called the Hamitic hypothesis. It's this idea that, you know, this biblical figure Ham, you know, moved into Rwanda and began intermarrying with African people and, and gave rise to these so-called Hamites, these semi-Caucasian Africans, who, because of their semi-Caucasian heritage, and I mean, I should stress this is complete pseudoscience, but, you know, because of the semi-Caucasian heritage, all sorts of European scientific racism began to come into play. They saw them as... It, you know, superior to the pure African counterparts and so on. And so the colonizers began working through the Tutsi, even though they were a minority population, and providing them with all sorts of educational opportunities, positions in government, within the colonial administration. Um, and this meant that then the Tutsi were on the front lines of a lot of these really aggressive colonial policies that were in different ways then negatively impacting the lives of, of the Hutu majority. And over time then, as, as Rwanda began moving towards independence, The Belgian colonizers began to realize that, you know, the future of the country likely meant they needed to invest in the Hutu majority a little bit more, and particularly as through missionary schools and so on, the Hutu majority began to be educated. They began to realize that if Rwanda became independent and it was a democratic election and so on, that it was likely the Hutu majority then that would take power in the country. And because they wanted to maintain friendly relationships with this new government that was taking shape, the Belgian colonizers decided to shift their allegiances to the Tutsi and instead really invest then in the Hutu uh, majority, and particularly this rising class of political elites among the Hutu. When the elections then happened and Rwanda then moved into, um, became an independent state in 1962, of course, the government that came into power through these elections um, was Hutu dominated. And this then created a point of, of rupture because this new government, much as 
previous governments in Rwanda and regimes in Rwanda had done, um, created its own official history of the country. But in this case, one that really privileged the Hutu at the expense of the Tutsi. Um, and this led to then a number, a series of decades where the Tutsi were very badly treated in the country. Um, there were periods, particularly around independence, um, and again in 1973, where the Tutsi were often actively targeted. There were massacres, there were pogroms that prompted Tutsi to flee the country, um, and especially those who had aligned themselves with the monarchy that had existed in Rwanda before independence. And this then gave rise to a community of Tutsi living outside of Rwanda, elsewhere in the Great Lakes region of Africa, who had been forcibly displaced from their homes, who to varying degrees have been radicalized by these experiences and, and were determined to force their right to return to Rwanda. The governments, first Gregoire Kayabanda and then Jivnal Habyarimana, were really opposed to the idea of allowing these Tutsi back into the country. And so as time went on, this sort of broad community of Tutsi refugees living outside of the country became increasingly militant in their ideas. They established what was known as the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Um, this is the party that's actually in power in Rwanda today. Um, and in 1990, the military arm then of the Rwandan Patriotic Front invaded Rwanda to try to force the government of the president then, Juvenal Habyarimana, to share power with them and allow them the right to return to the country. Um, but unfortunately, this led to a period of civil war that sort of ebbed and flowed over the next few years. And during this period then, this is when we saw the rise of this Hutu power extremist movements, community of people, um, largely political elites around Habyarimana who were increasingly radicalized by the civil war and began to use it as an opportunity to spread anti-Tutsi rhetoric and propaganda through the media and indeed invested in the creation of what's known as the Interahamwe and the Mpuzamagambi. These are two youth militias who initially were, were created to sort of defend the country from you know, the RPF invasion. But increasingly as the war went on, it seems their mandate began to shift to just defending themselves against the Tutsi more broadly um, and really sort of building on this idea that the Tutsi were a historic threat to the well-being of the Hutu majority. Unfortunately, then, on the 7th of April, 1984, Javier Imana was assassinated. Um, his plane was shot down. And this then, you know, with all of these different rising tensions in the country, served as a trigger. Um, immediately following his, his death, his assassination, they began putting up roadblocks in the city and exterminating members of Rwanda's political moderate community um, as a means of allowing them, the Hutu power extremists, to control the interim government that took shape. And shortly then, after most of the political moderates had been wiped out, they began targeting the Tutsi majority and including then men, women, children, civilians, not just potential combatants. They really tried to exterminate everybody um, of Tutsi heritage as well as their supporters in areas of Rwanda that were not yet under RPF control as a result of fighting during the civil war. And this, of course, then led to this massive death toll. You know, low-end estimates are about 500,000 civilians, predominantly Tutsi, who were killed. High-end estimates, I mean, the Rwandan government insists that over a million just Tutsi were, were killed during this period. Um, and of course, this had then horrible ramifications for the broader Great Lakes region, creating refugee crises and, and various other things that were still, you know, dealing with the legacies of today. So today, 27 years after the genocide, the Rwandan Patriotic Front is in power in Rwanda. And what is the official narrative about the genocide? Every government has its preferred official narrative. But the version of Rwandan history that, that tends to dominate in, in public settings in Rwanda today is one in which, you know, there, there was sort of a, a steady 
there was kind of an idyllic pre-colonial period in which all Rwandans were united. I mean, historically, this is actually quite questionable, but, you know, this is this is the position the government maintains. And then, of course, it was really the colonizers who created ruptures and divisions along ethnic lines between Rwandans and created this staunch division between the Hutu and the Tutsi. That this was then exacerbated by independence, by the Hutu claiming a majority in the government and then being able to establish, you know, these new presidential republics. From there, the idea is that, you know, there were periods of extreme tension, there was political violence, there were massacres of Tutsi, and the Tutsi were very much oppressed by these Hutu governments that were in power from 62 to 1994. The genocide then is, is very much understood as a, as a sort of direct result of, of this. As I mentioned, the government insists that over one point, I think it's 1.2 million predominantly Tutsi, I think almost entirely Tutsi were killed during the genocide by the Hutu power extremists, although sometimes this is conflated with the Hutu population more generally in the official narrative. There's there's some discussion of, of rescue and the acknowledgement that there, there are Hutu who tried to rescue people, but the real sort of rescuers, the saviors in the context of, of the official narrative on the genocide in Rwanda today is the RPF. Um, so the war, the civil war that happened in the country from 1990 is often framed as a war of liberation. And then moving sort of forward into history, I mean, the understanding is very much that the RPF was responsible for stopping the genocide. And that then in the aftermath of the genocide, you know, having put together this transitional government, it's really the RPF that has kind of steered Rwanda away from this extreme ethnic and political bloodshed, um, this, this negative aspect of its history. Um, the RPF, of course, has put in place policies and so on that are intended to promote a kind of sense of shared Rwandan national identity, and that this is then largely responsible for ensuring that we don't see further episodes of extreme ethnic and political bloodshed in the country going forward. And of course, one of the ways that, that they do this is by really trying to control how and when and, and where people speak about the genocide in, in Rwanda, as well as other kinds of political violence that, that have happened around, around the genocide as well. What is the government doing? What kind of mechanisms of memory politics is uh, the Rwanda? government employing to uphold this narrative of the genocide. I read, for example, about um, various memorials or something called uh, the genocide ideology law. Uh, could you maybe explain a bit, especially the genocide ideology law, what that is, what, what is the purpose of it? Is it against uh, genocide denial or what kind of purpose uh, do these mechanisms have? Well, I mean, in the aftermath of the genocide, the Rwandan government was really faced with this unenviable task of trying to reconcile people who've been very much divided by by this extreme violence and, you know, everything that had kind of led up to it. And so they invested in a quite ambitious transitional justice campaign that included the creation of different uh, memorial sites and, and laws um, to try to prevent people from spreading genocide ideology or investing in genocide ideology. They also invested in national courts within Rwanda, as well as grassroots courts known as Gachacha. And, and in different ways then, they, they tried to pursue this policy of what was called at the time universal accountability, this, this policy that basically attempted to prosecute everybody in the country who had been accused of genocide-related crimes. And that could range from, you know, the really big crimes like sexual violence, which was very widespread during the genocide, or, or mass murder, but it could also include um, what are often regarded as kind of lesser crimes like property, crimes against property, looting, informing on people who were in hiding, that kind of thing. So, I mean, it was, these prosecutions were very comprehensive. Um, Gachacha alone dealt with, uh, I believe, just over 1.9 million cases 
not individuals, but, but cases of, of genocide-related crimes um, before it ended in 2013. And I mean, all of these different mechanisms then have worked together in different ways to kind of uphold the government's preferred official narrative. So, for example, um, you mentioned the genocide ideology law. I mean, this is a law that's been in place now since I think at least 2003, and it existed in, in different kinds of forms before that, whereby um, people who you know spoke publicly in ways that say condemned the Tutsi or tried to victim blame Tutsi genocide survivors or talked about the history in the country of the country in a way that really deviated from this this idea that we had once all been united as Rwandans, etc., could be prosecuted. So they could be prosecuted just for speaking about the genocide in the wrong way or speaking to other Rwandans in ways that seem to be upholding these sort of bad history, as it's often called, that was prominent under the regimes of Kaibanda and Habyarimana. But the memorials as well, I mean, Rwanda didn't really have a strong culture of, of memorialization of political violence. I mean, under Kaibanda and Habyarimana, as you could imagine, I mean, these were Hutu presidents who in many ways kind of encouraged violence against the Tutsi when it suited them. So there were never really any memorials under their leadership to the people who were killed in this political violence. Um, and so I think that led to an impulse after the genocide with a now predominantly Tutsi government in place um, to make sure that the genocide was being commemorated and in ways that really centered survivors. And in the early days, I mean, I think that's how a lot of the genocide commemorations and memorials took shape. There was a lot of survivor input. But increasingly over the years, as the government, I think, attempted to kind of cement its official narrative, less and less survivors were, were involved. It became these sites and these, these activities became more politicized. And so, you know, again, going back to this idea of genocide ideology and genocide denial, what we've seen is, I think, more um, potential for prosecutions, more condemnation of people using the wrong language in speaking about the genocide. And indeed, even just the idea of genocide denial is, is from, from my perspective, it's, it's expanding somewhat now, not just, you know, where people are overtly saying the genocide didn't happen or, you know, the Tutsi deserved it. And I'm, here I'm paraphrasing what Hutu power extremists might say. This is not obviously my my perspective on the genocide. But, you know, even just sort of arguing that it's complicated and, and we should also be thinking about, you know, the Hutu who have suffered, or we should be thinking about what happened to the Batwa, which is a, a third, a second minority community in Rwanda that often gets overlooked, you know, and wanting to talk about other kinds of atrocity or the suffering of other groups becomes equated with genocide denial because it's seen as minimizing what Tutsi genocide survivors went through. So could we kind of say that this official commemoration and official narratives about the genocide actually maintain, in a way, uh, the ethnic, political and some social tensions and divisions in Rwandan society? Yeah, I mean, I think it can, maybe not for everybody. I do think there are people who take genuine comfort from the memorial sites, the commemorative activities, and it does allow them some release to these these ethnic and political tensions that they might otherwise feel. Um, you know, I think anytime having something of a support network can be can be useful people for people when they've gone through these really extremely violent um, experiences. But I mean, it, it is important to note that the context of, you know, the genocide memorials, the commemorative activities, which are known as Pabuka, this is really the only instance in Rwandan society today where you can talk about being Tutsi and Hutu and Twa and not sort of deal with, with this this taboo and, and so on. Um, and I think especially because the commemorative activities and sites don't recognize that, for example, 
with the RPF invasion in 1990, some Hutu died um, at the hands of RPF combatants or were forcibly displaced from their homes in fear of violence or because of violence, this kind of thing. You know, the ways in which they might have been victimized during the Civil War period doesn't really get talked about. Um, the people that they lost doesn't don't get talked about. And there's really no outlet for them to talk about these things without risking being, you know, prosecuted for genocide ideology. And, and I do, I do worry that that means that there is this sort of prevalent reservoir of ongoing ethnic tension, political tensions, frustrations, and so on, for, for people who've had these kinds of experiences. Um, another example of that, I would say, is, is potentially with the Batwa community, um, because they kind of got caught between the Hutu and the Tutsi and all of this. Um, historically, they were often seen as aligned with the Tutsi, because a number of Batwa served the monarchy in Rwanda prior to 1962 as, you know, dancers and, and executioners and, and so on. And so at times they were seen as aligned with Tutsi interests, and so they were then victims in the genocide. But likewise, in other communities, they were called upon to perpetrate the genocidal violence against the Tutsi. And so they became perpetrators and bystanders and informers, you know, in all of this and it resulted in, in prosecutions as well. So, you know, but again, this is something that's really challenging to talk about in Rwanda today because of the official narrative, the way it's constructed and demonstrated through sites and, and activities. Слушате podcast Fonda za humanitarno pravo. Is there, have you come across uh, some various forms of memory activism that challenges the dominant narratives and the official memory politics? Yeah, I mean, there's a handful of actually quite prominent examples. I think the most obvious one would be the the Rwandan singer, um, Kazita Mahigo, who unfortunately died in, in police custody in prison. He was a genocide survivor. He was somebody who was really, really prominent from about 2010 for his, his support for this idea of a shared national identity and wanting Rwandans to reconcile and so on. But in 2014, I believe it was, he released a song that kind of questioned the official narrative. Um, it's called The Meaning of Death in English, where he sort of talks about the need for um, all victims surrounding, you know, this political violence in the 1990s to be recognized and have opportunities to, to talk about what they went through. And this meant that he very quickly fell out of favor with the government. He was never really prosecuted for, say, genocide denial or, or minimizing the genocide. Um, in his case, he, the prosecution tried to connect him with um, terrorist activities taking shape outside of the country, particularly in the DRC. And so they kind of went down that route for prosecutions as a way of discrediting him and so on. But, you know, it's hard to say how reliable that evidence was and the extent to which maybe he was just being punished for having written a song that, that questioned the official narrative. And I mean, certainly a lot of the Rwandans that I've spoken to um, over the years, and particularly since his death, there's a very strong sense that it was really this song, this questioning of the government um, that resulted in his in his downfall and yeah I mean and again he's he's a very controversial figure for Rwandans today and he's I mean his music has largely been banned in the country as a result of what happened to him but there there are many others and I mean certainly for ordinary rural Rwandans as well where people you know in the context of a classroom or commemoration etc you know speak out against the official narrative um, we do see prosecutions we do see people getting arrested and so on um, and yeah Of course, the ramifications of that for them are very, very significant. So spaces exist where people can can have these conversations. And a lot of people, I think, are having them um, in their families and in small sort of groups where they really trust the people around them not to speak about it more broadly. But moments where that then slips into the public in different ways, you know, the ramifications, the, the consequences are quite swift and quite severe. 
I was wondering because you uh, did um, extensive fieldwork and interviews across Rwanda, I was just wondering how genocide survivors actually see the official memory politics and official narratives because all of these mechanisms and memorials and so on are supposed to actually address them. My, my approach was to often do multiple interviews with each individual. So, you know, try and do initially, I try to get a life history of the person and that might take an interview or two, sometimes more. <laughs> and then I would go back and have more sort of thematic interviews with them where I would ask them specific questions based on what kind of came up in their life history. And I often found that the first interview or two, people would really stick to the official history in the country. I think because they didn't trust me initially, they weren't quite sure what my interests were in all of this, who I might be speaking to. But then over time, I think if they became more comfortable with the process of being interviewed, they, they realized that, you know, in the aftermath of me interviewing them, they weren't visited by the police or, you know, didn't have any problems. Then they would often start to, to speak about it in a way, I think, that maybe more honestly reflected how they really felt. I mean, with genocide survivors, they often appreciated the need for the official narrative and likewise often really appreciated the government for maintaining peace and stability within the country and at least trying in different ways to, to really protect their interests. But they also, I think, recognize the dangers of this narrative becoming and the sites, the memorial sites becoming increasingly politicized. And I mean, a number of them shared with me kind of the feeling that you know, gosh, if anything ever happens to Kagame, if anything ever happens to the RPF, like it's, I think we're going to just have another wave of bloodshed because the people around me are just so upset. You know, they feel dominated again by the Tutsi as this resurgence of, you know, what Hutu power extremists often equated with a kind of slavery by, by the Tutsi. And the fact then that they can't commemorate their own dead and, and their own suffering isn't recognized means that, again, you know, there's this, this powerful reservoir of tension that could just erupt at any time should this very, very strong, you know, authoritarian government ever ever ceased to exist. So there was a lot of concern along those levels. And likewise, a lot of survivors, I think, felt that at times the more complicated aspects of how they survived couldn't really be acknowledged in the official narrative. So, I mean, I interviewed some survivors where they were targeted in the first few days of the genocide, and then they managed to make it to an area that was controlled by the RPF, and they became combatants. And then because of what had happened to them, they'd been radicalized in a way as a result of being you know, attacked in the genocide, they committed atrocities against Hutu that they encountered fighting with the RPF. Um, in some cases, I mean, these were even child soldiers or, you know, people who in other ways probably shouldn't have been getting involved in the conflict as combatants, but they, they chose to do so. And, and they would admit to having perpetrated atrocities and they felt terribly guilty about it. But at that exact moment, I mean, they they felt it was an appropriate response, you know, and, and they couldn't talk about these things. Likewise, sometimes they felt they couldn't really talk about the people who rescued them, especially where those people had simultaneously committed atrocities against others. Because they'd been sort of called out before Gachacha, they'd been prosecuted, they'd been put in prison or sent to community works. They'd been so thoroughly condemned in the community that they couldn't then stand up and say, well, no, but actually this person hit me for X number of days or, you know, gave me food and, and you know, in other ways made sure I survived. Because doing so would be seen as kind of going against that, that gachacha mechanism and the government's, you know, initiatives around transitional justice. And so those elements of their stories weren't being, they felt they couldn't tell or speak to. And, and that often could leave them with guilt and frustration as well because they worried that in those instances, maybe they weren't encouraging people to commit to reconciliation because they themselves were sort of abandoning people that, that they could be rescuing or at least helping, you know, through this really, really difficult time period of, of prosecution and so on. So yeah, it could be it could be very, very complicated for, for survivors, for sure. You mentioned gachacha courts. So, you know, 
us, the Humanitarian Law Center and myself uh, working in the in Serbia and in the post-Yugoslav space where there was no really mass um, prosecution of perpetrators, uh, their low-level perpetrators have largely, uh, haven't been uh, prosecuted by courts. I was just looking at the Rwandan case and, you know, having uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda established already in 95, and then for the high-level perpetrators and leaders, but then also national courts, and then as well, reinvention of the Gachacha courts. So just to explain for our listeners, the pre-colonial dispute resolution practice uh, in communities. So this all sounds unimaginable for someone coming from the post-Yugoslav space where there is such a low level of um, accountability and prosecution. But what is the state of uh, transitional justice in post-genocide Rwanda? Is this a successful story, having so many people prosecuted. I mean, I don't think it's even just like the former Yugoslavia where people are kind of amazed by this, you know, incredibly comprehensive response um, in terms of prosecutions and so on. I think Rwanda is really the only example we have in, in modern history where, you know, government has gone to such lengths to ensure that like everybody who committed genocide related crimes is held accountable, right? So in that sense, it's quite, it's quite unprecedented. Um, but I mean, it also means they were working in some ways without really a model for how to do this. And again, I think for some people, um, Gachacha, for example, or the national trials brought them a lot of relief. I know that there are some survivors, again, people I've people I've worked with, people I've interviewed, where, you know, um, they did feel that Gachacha was quite cathartic for them because, you know, they could speak out about what happened to them in front of their community. Everybody knows now the person that they held responsible or people they held responsible for these atrocities were then, you know, put put into prison um, or held in prison, given a sentence um, or sent to community works. They were forced to make some kind of reparations. And, and there are some people who are very satisfied by that. Like, it, it doesn't bring back the people who were killed, obviously, and it doesn't, you know, make up for physical and, and psychological trauma done to their, done to their bodies and to their minds. But but it's something that I think in other contexts survivors didn't get, especially I think where there's these big international processes like the International Criminal Tribunal for, for Yugoslavia, for example, or, or Rwanda, sorry, former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. But again, there, there are also, I think, challenges um, that people have dealt with. Rwanda, I think we saw a lot of false allegations. People wanting to have somebody prosecuted because they kind of heard through the grapevine they're responsible for something, but you know they maybe don't have direct evidence. So, you know, there were instances where people, because somebody wanted their land or or there was some kind of interpersonal conflict, people were accused of things that they didn't actually do. Those all went before Gachacha as well. Um, and in some cases, I think people may have actually been further radicalized by their experiences of transitional justice, the sense that I think especially when there could be such a long wait between the point when somebody was put in prison based on allegations of genocide-related crimes and then they were actually tried before Chacha. In some cases, people spent, you know, a decade waiting for trial in prison only to then be released based on time served, having served more time than they might have just from having from the prosecution alone, or having having basically been acquitted um, or found innocent of the allegations made against them, a number of the people that I interviewed in the prisons, for example, so these are people who were convicted of genocide-related crimes, often sort of presented Rwanda's transitional justice program as a kind of modern incarnation 
of what they kind of equated with like the Tutsi enslavement of the Hutu and really felt that it was evidence that the government, the RPF, didn't have the Hutu's best interests at heart. They were tearing apart families and, you know, condemning people, stigmatizing people. And and in their minds, you know, if they hadn't been radicalized by the civil war and, and during the genocide, it seemed to me that they had become ra- radicalized because of their experiences in the prison, experiences of Kachacha. And I think that's quite a concerning thing. I think that's actually something we need to really look at more closely because, again, these are people who one day might be released, having served their sentences. They go back into their communities and what message are they going to then be communicating to their families, to their broader communities, um, to youth, right? Um, and, and particularly, I think their children and their children's children are... You know, are they going to be going back to this kind of bad history of Rwanda, you know, that was prevalent under Kaibanda and Javier Mana and teaching the people around them this? Or are they really going to be committing to this idea of national unity and reconciliation and accepting responsibility for the crimes they committed? I think, you know, there are a lot of questions about how these people reintegrate and the potential, you know, that they could um, become a source of further conflict and bloodshed in the future. Well, talking about uh, perpetrators, you also conducted interviews with them, also in prisons. Why is it important to talk to perpetrators? Why is it important to understand the perspectives of genocide perpetrators and war crimes perpetrators? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a fairly controversial aspect of my research, which I'm sure you can imagine, because the idea of speaking with perpetrators and giving them a platform to talk about their crimes and why they committed them, and and I think especially, you know, the, the way that transitional justice processes affect them. Understandably, I mean, genocide survivors typically don't really see this as appropriate. Run a government certainly doesn't see it as particularly appropriate. And indeed, I mean, a lot of scholars as well, they worry about the ethics of, of speaking to people who've committed these kinds of heinous atrocities. But, you know, having said all of that, I do think there are moments where perpetrators are uniquely positioned to tell us and teach us about how genocides and war crimes and crimes against humanity takes shape in a society in a way that, you know, genocide survivors and bystanders and so on may not always understand with the same degree of, of, you know, firsthand experience. I think there's often a lot of uh, stereotypes and assumptions about the kinds of people who participate in genocide. And, you know, the kind of classic example is, you know, they're monsters, they're sociopaths, they're, they're criminals. In a lot of contexts, and I don't think Rwanda is particularly unique in this regard, some of the people responsible for carrying out the most graphic instances of violence in the genocide were ordinary people. And by this, I mean, you know, moderate levels of education, middle-aged, predominantly men, but not always. A lot of women participated as well. You know, they often had a strong sense of religious faith. Catholicism was very prevalent in Rwanda at that time. Um, So they identified very much as Christians. They didn't have any kind of previous criminal background. And I think this is something that the public needs to understand about these kinds of human rights violations is it's it's not just something that sociopaths and criminals and, and ideologues participate in. Ordinary people can get drawn into this violence too. And for all sorts of different reasons, sometimes because they're scared or they're trying to defend their homes or they're trying to defend loved ones in their communities. Um, sometimes it's peer pressure. Um, sometimes it's anger because they too feel they've been victimized in different ways and they want revenge, right? Um, I think I often found that with the more sort of elite convicted perpetrators, um, there's a tendency for them to be really um, ideologically motivated. They had decided that the Tutsi were evil, they'd enslaved the Hutu, they wanted revenge for all these historic injustices, Um, they felt the RPF was, you know, this, this dangerous invading force of foreigners. You know, so ideologically they tended to be quite motivated, but but when it came to like ordinary rural Rwandans who were outside of this political movement of, of Hutu power extremists, 
that ideology just didn't seem to be as prevalent. It's not to say that they didn't have a sense that, say, the Hutu had been oppressed by the Tutsi in the past during the monarchical period, but that wasn't at the forefront of their mind when they decided to pick up a machete and, and these kinds of things. And so, you know, I think that's that's something really valuable that comes out of perpetrator studies, as, as difficult and potentially challenging as this research can be, that we don't necessarily get from just speaking to survivors or bystanders or, or eyewitnesses to these kinds of atrocities. Um, so I would say that's that's really the big reason, although, you know, if I had more time, there'd be other things I could mention as well. And for the end, I would ask you just if you can summarize, what is the big takeaway of your study of post-genocide Rwanda? I mean, I think methodologically, I would say the importance of working across different lines of the conflict in these kinds of contexts is whether it's, you know, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, which, you know, to me, I see as being more or less equal in terms of international law and in, in terms of their, their severity. I think we need more studies that work beyond just say listening to survivors as important as it is i think to give survivors platforms to talk about what's happened to them i think we need more academic studies and so on that that work not only with survivors but also bystanders and perpetrators and you know obviously in saying this i recognize how messy these categories are and that they can overlap in different ways and so on but i think working across these these different lines of the conflict is one really important takeaway from the work that i've done over the years more thematically, I think, I would say that the need to recognize just how messy the process of reconciliation and social repair can be, again, in the aftermath of these kinds of atrocities. And the fact that it's not just a straight sort of line to reconciliation, that there's going to be moments where there are backlashes and people can commit or not commit, commit, you know, when it's politically convenient and then, you know, reject it, you know, a little bit later because it no longer serves their interests. All of this leads to, of course, this idea that people, even while they appear to be reconciling and moving forward with their, their lives, can still have internalized feelings and ideas that make that very hard for them to maintain over time and in their in, in their everyday lives, right? So, yeah, I would say just the messiness of, of the aftermath of these kinds of atrocities, recognition that this is going to take time, it's not going to be particularly comfortable or easy for anybody, and, and, and likewise, it's not just going to be this nice linear path to reconciliation, um, that there can be setbacks at any moment, um, and that we need to be, you know, aware of this and vigilant of, of what, you know, resurgences in ideology, um, genocide ideology and political violence and so on might start to look like in their earliest stages, so we can hopefully do a better job of preventing them in future um, from escalating to genocide. Your uh, statement that there is no straight line uh, towards reconciliation is uh, really also a good conclusion to this conversation and also a good lesson for other contexts such as the post-Yugoslav space. And I would like you to thank you for illuminating the genocide and its aftermath and memory and different perspectives on it in Rwanda for our listeners. This was Memory Cultures in Dialogue, the podcast of the Humanitarian Law Center from Belgrade, and we talked about Rwanda to Erin Jesse. Slušali ste podcast Fonda za humanitarno pravo. 